Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, I'm talking story with Cara Garaleo in the Philippines, a certified interpretive guide. Welcome, Cara. Well, it's great to see you again, Cara, because we met uh, when you took a certified interpretive guide course with us in 2020, I believe. Yes, November 2020. Yeah. Well, I remember it well. Uh, you were getting up at two in the morning to be there on 8 a.m. Hawaii time. That's that's quite. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I, I I don't regret waking up, actually. <laughs> so I'm really happy to have had that opportunity and that it was offered online. I'm curious, where where do you live exactly in Philippines? And I don't mean address, of course, but, you know. <laughs> Are you in Manila or are you somewhere else? Or Yes, I'm in Manila. Uh, I'm based in the capital with, uh, I think, over 10 million people. <laughs> My goodness. Oh, boy. We we have a couple hundred in Captain Cook. So, <laughs> yeah, I think you win the size thing on the community. Uh, tell me, did you grow up in Manila or did, did you grow up somewhere else and move there? Um, I grew up in Manila, but uh, I I do have a, a year overseas that was quite formative, I think, in my, you know, since we're talking about our profession, in the formation of my professional career and what I ended up doing. That was, I believe, Australia? Uh, no, I actually lived in... Uh, Massachusetts in Cambridge oh, when my dad was yes when my dad was a student and as a young five-year-old I have a very solid core memory of having a good time at the Boston's Children's Museum <laughs> that uh, really stuck uh, with me and I, when I look back it was very influential in my formation why is that? Why is that? Because it was uh, the first time I actually enjoyed being in a museum. I had so much fun being in a museum. And it just somehow stuck with me. And when we returned, it was something that I actually enjoyed uh, doing, which was not very common for people my age. Yeah. Well, and you've stuck with that. I mean, for since five, you still work with museums, right? <laughs> yes, museums in the in the culture in culture nature culture uh, interpretation field. Yes. You didn't have that year of a five-year-old in your resume, so I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, now, it was there. Now I'm no, curious. It's here. Yeah. You apparently did a bachelor's degree in the Philippines. Yes. And then studied abroad to do a master's. Yes. Yeah, so I had a undergraduate in history, and that was because at that time I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I only knew I liked the past. I liked learning about how people lived and their experiences. And so 
even when I was in uh, university, there were certain professors who couldn't also understand what to do <laughs> with me because my interest in history did not fit the box of what their graduates typically did uh, with their with their degrees. So after university, I volunteered for a architectural conservation advocacy. And there I realized, oh, this is really what I enjoy doing. And I decided to go to grad school in Australia. And I chose Australia particularly because it was, in terms of built heritage, it's young. It's And so I thought that it would be able to provide me with a program that was quite applicable uh, to the Philippines, where most built structures are also quite young. Uh, it dates back to the 19th century, uh, most. Uh, if, but of course, there are other churches, of course, that are much older, but majority would probably be of the 19th century. So I went to uh, Australia to study heritage conservation. Wonderful. Well, and that's very similar in the Hawaiian Islands, where um European movement uh, exploration moving into the islands uh kind of brought the more formal structures and things the buildings that were built before that were very much villager we call them hale uh mm -hmm. bamboo or wooden structure that was protection from the elements but it it wasn't the kind of stone steel glass edifice that uh, we, we now have everywhere. Yeah, that's interesting because even here, although we have vernacular, we also have vernacular architecture in the south and in um, the north of the country, for some reason, it wasn't on my radar when I was when I was studying. Probably because you know you live in the city, you don't get out much. You you start where you are. But yeah, uh, yeah. we particularly enjoyed uh, when we were visiting Kenya in East Africa. A professor that wanted to meet with us took us to a thing called the Bomas, and it's very much. The vernacular architecture of eastern eastern africa they have the various different styles of of uh, home-built structures and of course when we take people to east africa on our eco tours one of the great joys is to show them a maasai village where every single structure was built by a woman in the tribe oh that's and amazing the men take care of cattle the women take care of the home <laughs> and so, a big difference in how a kind of cultural interpretation of roles and things of that sort. I I was curious when I saw ICCROM, what is uh -huh. that? Okay, so ICROM, it uh, actually stands for the International Center for the Conservation and Preservation and Restoration of Cultural Property. So it's an international uh, organization uh, that is involved in basically conservation, research, and training 
uh, of its member states. And you so, had some involvement with them? So I got involved with them in 2000, I think it was 2015, as a, as a student, actually, as a trainee in their, at that time it was called People, Nature, Culture course. And it was how to bring people-centered approaches to the conservation of nature and culture. And I got involved, I applied uh, to the program because at that time I felt, oh, what, you know, I was already, you know, about uh, how many years in, uh, nearly 10 years into my consultancy work. But uh, there was still this feeling that uh, I'm not quite sure if what I'm doing is uh, the right thing, uh, primarily because my approach, my role in conservation is was quite unique. Um, it was very different from, let's say, an actual architect doing drafts of how to conserve uh, a building or technical individuals who are working with glass or metal and stone and actually restoring uh, elements of a structure. My work was, you know, helping people understand significance, the value of a place. And I wasn't sure at that time if I was just crazy, the crazy person. <laughs> and so I applied to the course to look into, okay, what is this? What are people-centered approaches? And I presented a case study uh, that I was working on for a project I was working on. And we, I was one of 25 uh persons from around the world, you know, Africa, South America, Europe, and Asia. And we all talked about how we were working with people uh, in the conservation process. And in a way, it's basically, you know, whether it is uh, community organizing, interpretation, research, all the other aspects of uh, conservation. Did they talk about interpretation at all? Uh, at that time, we actually had a specialist in interpretation, and she was on board uh, as a resource person. Yes, they, they, they did talk uh, a bit about it. You started as a consultant very early in your career. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I guess it was uh, the, the title they give everyone in the office. <laughs> but, uh, um, well, my, my first, uh, well, in, in Australia, they, they, my employer used heritage consultant for everyone. <laughs> but when I returned to the Philippines, um, at that time, we the I think the conservation program in the Philippines started around two thousand, maybe around two thousand three only, um, and so when I returned in the uh, in two thousand seven, there weren't really too many graduates or people who had trained overseas, 
And so the uh, working in heritage was never really, there were never really opportunities unless you were in a museum or you were working for a national uh, agency uh, related to heritage. So most of the jobs that you take on are on a consultancy basis. And at the time, uh, yes, I was I was only 27 <laughs> when I uh, started uh, in my consultancy. But I was very fortunate because the people I worked with actually were very open to these new ideas I was bringing into their workspace. And they trusted me enough to... Uh, test, you know, to test ideas and approaches on um, the communities they were basically working with at the time. So, so my first consultancy gig was on uh, to develop a framework on how to do community-based heritage tourism for a particular nonprofit. Great. The term interpretation show up for you before 2015 or was that kind of yes actually yes it it first came to me in around 2000 when I was in grad school oh, in Australia sorry. when I was in grad school and uh we didn't have a course on it but through my readings I discovered um, interpretation and I was fortunate enough to work on a project with my with on my first uh, heritage related job in around 2006 with uh, a very very generous uh, man named Graham Brooks and he ran a consultancy firm in Sydney and when we were making conservation management plans uh, there was always a component there on interpretation and he and his staff and his and my fellow colleagues were the ones who taught me about interpretation but at that time it was more architectural interpretation of the significant elements of a heritage building so the approach was particularly in design how do you interpret it, the significance in the design or, or conservation of a building it was probably when I returned that I really decided to read a lot more yeah. <laughs> on what this is <laughs> and so uh, what I did was I looked at interpretation courses in universities uh, overseas and I tried to look at their reading list oh. what were the students reading <laughs> and I would buy if it was available on Amazon I would buy the book on Amazon and that's how I actually came across your book well Lisa's book interpretive planning the 5m uh, model and I also so Lisa's book uh, Alan Leftridge on interpretive writing there was also interpretive master planning by John Viverka which was published by museums etc so I was always trying to read up on what is this thing and what is the practice? How do I do it? 
And uh, that's how I really got into, um, and, th and those principles I actually applied in my consultancy works. I think that's amazing because like you, I discovered uh, interpretation in my late 20s when I was already a state park naturalist. Mm -hmm. Naturalist back then just pretty much mean we we thought meant tell them everything you know about nature all the time and uh <laughs> the idea that we would actually relate it to something in their life experience or all that way well, I, I think we did sometimes but i don't think mm -hmm. we why and i don't think we we thought about it that much we just thought giving facts was a good way to go i'm i'm curious about another area that i've in reading about your background uh what's this about microloans Oh, uh, so I'm uh, card MRI. Uh, so card is uh, a microfinance institution. It's uh, here in the Philippines, and they give loans to uh, micro entrepreneurs and also uh, small and medium sized entrepreneurs. And they've been around for about thirty years. But I got involved with them in 2014. So again, very early in my career uh, in, uh, in, in heritage uh, interpretation. And I was tasked to help them develop cultural tours for their clientele. And I was, and the instruction was, so they have clients on the, finance side that right. they give loans to. And so their businesses can, everything and anything under the sun that is imaginable from selling water to manufacturing, everything, selling paper bags. And um, my what they wanted was for their clients when they, who had earned certain incentives to participate in a cultural tour. And they wanted the tour to be relevant and meaningful in terms of realizing the value of, you know, history, culture, identity, but also all the suppliers in the entire value chain of that tour had to come from the members. So initially, you know, they're just, they are essentially entrepreneurs working on their own, but bringing them together to, uh, in a tour, ex to, cre to create a tour experience where they are the suppliers and they also learn about local culture and history and what is and the value of uh, certain lessons from the past in their present day lives. So I've, We've, I've consulted with them since 2014, and we have several tours across the country. Um, and all, and basically, we've paid out uh, about more than 10 million pesos. I, I'm not sure how much that is in dollars. <laughs> no but yeah, but uh, there had to be a learning, com uh, a learning and life enrichment component, and an economic uh, development component for the clients. Oh, that's great! I I just think 
uh, I think that's a wonderful program, uh, you know, throughout Africa. That's also a common way to try to lift people up at the community level. And uh, we're, we're just, there's so many parts of the world where financing is not available to the average person. And yes, and yeah. unless they're targeted by somebody who understands yeah. that you have to bring people up economically yeah. in the community if you expect them also to do well in other ways. Yes, exactly. And so that was uh, for me, well, I'm it, I'm not sure if uh, it reflected in my CV, but I actually, after I returned from Sydney, I taught in a university. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's uh, one of the top universities in the country. But I really felt that I needed to do more and that there were people out out, <laughs> out there, you know, who would not have this opportunity to learn about history, about who we are as a people. You know, the how, we, there are people, we, we are not able to wrestle enough with our difficult history and therefore the country has the problems it currently has and so it was very important for me uh, to kind of bridge what I knew uh, was available in the academe either through books or through my colleagues and the people who I think would benefit more uh, from this knowledge but do not have the access to this information, either because of a distance or economic situation or even language, the language barrier. Um, and so that's why I ended I, my interest in developing cultural heritage tours uh, and historical tours was triggered. Are there many languages in the Philippines? Yes. So there are over a hundred oh, languages. Oh, in wow. fact, <laughs> my mother and my father have two different mother tongues, but they met in university. So they ended up speaking English and not the national the language, which is actually Filipino. So I can speak my mother's language. I cannot speak my father's language. Um, and so all those, all those barriers yeah. uh, uh, to, to, to knowing and discovering who you are, I think, uh, needs to be, you know, addressed in many different ways. And this is what I do is just one, one of it, the way I see it. So what were you teaching at the university? I was teaching um, heritage assessment. So understanding value of cultural properties, uh, but also Philippine history. So particularly the pre-colonial to the Spanish uh, period. How did you happen to discover uh, the Certified Interpretive Guide course? Oh, because I've been uh, <laughs> always talking. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> the professionals, what do the professionals <laughs> do? <laughs> Um, I always felt that, you know, I could learn more uh, if I had the opportunity 
to also have a conversation with all these authors, basically. And I was I, I was aware of NEI. I had been following the website on and off for maybe five years. And I oh and I was already looking into flying to the US uh, to attend one of the programs because as much as I love reading, the confidence you get <laughs> from having a conversation with someone to clarify your questions, your ideas, you know, it's different. Uh, I think it gives you greater confidence and um, you're able to, you know, uh, answer the questions that have been lingering uh, for so long. So that's how I came to know about the, and I think I, I just saw it, uh, I, I hadn't visited the website for a while, but I saw it and I said, oh my gosh, they have a program online. I don't care what time it is, I'm gonna sign up. And when I saw, oh, it's the author of the books. Okay, I have to sign up with these particular <laughs> people. <laughs> because yes, I was, I, I am a fan. <laughs> I'll admit it. You're very generous. I was, was the course that helpful for you? Did you feel like it uh, kind of helped your understanding of what you already were doing? Because you knew a fair amount about it before you came into the course. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it definitely um, addressed the questions I had. Uh, and it still enhanced, I think, my approach to things. So I guess as a historian, I was always quite wordy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and my, uh, one weakness is uh, I, I'm wordy. And it, you mentioned it earlier, you tell everything. Yeah. And so um, with the course, I think it really broke uh, the process down into very specific uh, steps you know, and it was very clear about how, okay, you don't need a whole paragraph for your theme. <laughs> you just need, you know, a sentence um, and then clarifying topics and how you build um, on that. So it was very helpful to me in refining what I was doing and, uh, being also specific about what outcomes you want to have. I thought that was also different out uh, very very important for me because again as a I guess as a historian I like I have that tendency to stay in the esoteric <laughs> the esoteric value but looking at it from the institution and uh, looking at very practical ways to measure your outcomes, whether it's them getting, like, I think it was, that's an example, getting a brochure, telling people that they would return, or picking up the trash, those very measurable outcomes for me was very helpful. Well, that's good. It's good to hear because uh, that's been a very important point for Lisa and I in all of our years of training and teaching, because we've watched so many programs uh, you mentioned the the way politics in a country continues to morph and change, and you just uh, 
you have leaders that will support culture and the arts and things, and you have leaders who don't. And mm. um, we watch interpretive programs in the United States be built up during periods of good economies, and then a tough economy comes along, and that's the first thing they dump. And yeah. we've just been very concerned that people on the ground, on the front line, need to understand there has to be some deliverable value to the organization that they yes. care about, or they simply view you as the icing on the cake, and we don't need the cake if we're struggling to feed ourselves. So, uh, Yes. And I, I would say, like, uh, even with interpretive planning uh, course, um, it, what also helped was, I think, with Lisa, you know, speaking the language of business, <laughs> you know, um, and speaking the language that says, you know, why you have to look from A to Z, to Z, and how at every step it is thought of. Uh, because, you know, when I'm on other projects, like whether it's with uh, the government, like you said, you know, it's e they want to drop it right away. <laughs> so the importance of uh, understanding where they're coming from you know, where they're coming from is so crucial. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, for me, you know, that was also very, very uh, helpful. Uh, and as much as I wanted to resist, you know, understanding the economics of it, I realized, no, you can't, <laughs> you can't get away uh, from, from those realities. Yeah, I know. I think a lot of us got into this field with a content interest. I just mm. about animals and plants and biology ecosystems. And uh, yet I grew up in a business family. My mm -hmm. uh, father and mother both were business people that were successful who built their business for businesses from scratch, from nothing. And I worked for them from 13 years old on. And I listened to all those little homilies that go with business people. The customer's always right. Don't try to make yeah. <laughs> don't try to embarrass them by proving they're wrong about something. Just help them. You know, and I, yes. <laughs> I, I realized at some point as a park ranger and interpreter that uh, I was actually applying some of the business principles that I grew up with and had not very, I hadn't been very kind to them. My dad wanted me to go to business school and I just said, no way. I have no interest in that. And yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um you have a uh, when you were speaking i just thought about uh, a question that we discussed with lisa in our online course and one of my one of my the, the participants asked how do you price a project <laughs> you know and so lisa you know, said this 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 and this this is how you can price uh, adjust for <laughs> depreciation all of those things but uh, what I also realized uh, when it comes to pricing uh, was that uh, if you also give it too cheaply, <laughs> if it's a steal, the client might not value it as much, you know. So 
it's I think recognizing the value uh, of what we do, both from a business side and a you know more an aspirational uh, side. So you hit a very important point. I can tell you that throughout my career, I've had this discussion a number of times with a board of directors who very often come at uh, running a nonprofit organization. Mm. They often come at it with a very kind of spiritual enthusiasm. Yeah. And include how do we pay our staff a reasonable salary and how do we build a sustainable organization that does not suffer yeah. during difficult times. And I once had to convince my board at a nature center who said, no, no, our programming for school children will be free. And I had to argue that we we literally weren't, weren't going to survive as an organization if we did not charge for school programs. And they said, well, we can't do that. That's why we're here. That's what we're for. And I said, well, think about this. What? How much does a free program have to be worth? And the answer is, is simple. It's nothing someone charges you nothing and you leave going, well, that wasn't very good. You still go, well, I didn't, I didn't pay anything for it. Yes. Yeah. You charge me $5 or 50 pesos or whatever the, yes. the amount is, it has to be worth that. And uh, one of the things about, as you know, cause you took Lisa's course and you took our certified interpretive guide course. We talk about the experience economy and in yeah. the experience economy, you can charge more because you're charging for an experience. It's not a commodity. If mm -hmm. I buy a cake mix, I expect it to be that great price I can get at a big box discount store. But if I buy an experience like going to a spa, a health spa, or going to a concert or a movie or whatever, I'm willing to pay more and I'm I'm less likely to be maybe cheap in how I make my yeah. solutions because I want that experience and interpretation exists in that realm of experience economy. And it hurts us if we think of what we do as a commodity, that it's just got to be inexpensive. In the end, it will, it will help the organization. You get to be more sustainable. You get more partners. Um, it's a win-win for, for everyone, you know, uh, and having Lisa discuss that, you know, in interpretive planning, uh, course for me said, okay, uh, I have to study this more, how I can yeah, speak the language of marketing, of sustainability, and not just of my my interests, basically, which I think is so important to interpretation. Well, she did what you did. She started early in her career in her 20s as a consultant. And the discipline of that is you you just don't feed your family and, and survive if you don't have a regular paycheck unless you do a good job and you understand kind of all of the parameters. What, the, what does the client want out of the... How do they value things? What are the, what will they pay? And then, of course, help them design programming that's more sustainable, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Is that is interpretive planning? As I presume, it's not the only thing you do, but it's a, a major component. No, 
it's a major component, but that's right. Like when Lisa talked about the life of a consultant, you know, I never did much self-reflection until she talked about the loneliness, the <laughs> uh, the lack of uh, co-workers, <laughs> having to motivate yourself. I said, oh yeah, that's exactly what I was uh, going through. I just didn't realize it. Uh, so that is, uh, I just want to say, Lisa, if you ever listen to this, that is also another thing I really appreciated uh, from your planning course. I uh, know. So I also do historical research. Uh, I write um, on Philippine history, and uh, I also work on a family business, which is in the in, in manufacturing desserts, basically cakes oh. and pastries. <laughs> so I, between 2010 and 2016, I had a cafe with my sisters. You know, we were just serving coffee and, and cake. And that was really a lot of fun. And um, it was... Uh, another opportunity i guess to understand a bit of the business business world <laughs> but uh, that's that's what i that's what i do basically well it's interesting i i built a restaurant at the nature center that i had and um found out just exactly how hard a restaurant is to run that's great i do you have any kind of professional interpretive network in the philippines no, unfortunately, we do we do not. And uh, to my knowledge, there are only, I think, two people from the Philippines who are certified by the NAI. <laughs> one is myself, and the other one is a colleague from CARD. <laughs> that I, us, I think. Yeah. Thank you. So, <laughs> I hope to send more. Um, and... Uh, a couple of people I know of from who are certified with Interpret Europe. So oh, yeah. unfortunately, there is no uh, interpretive network. And um, I think even the term is still very alien to most people. And because again, in a country of 100 languages, when they think interpretation, they'll probably think, uh, what language? But I think that people who are in ecotourism or in culinary tourism, they are applying a lot of the principles of interpretation in their work. However, they're not maybe aware that uh, what they're doing is interpretation or uh, for some, I know they're they're also very clear that they want a specific outcome. So that's also nice from their program. Well, I would suggest respectfully that one of the things I did over and over throughout my career was create local networks for interpretive sharing. And one of the ways we did that was to have a monthly, we called it uh, the one we did in Fort Collins, Colorado, a netluck. Uh, I don't know whether the term potluck is ever used in Philippines or not, but everybody bringing a food dish to yeah. share at a dinner, I'm sure is a common thing in most cultures. And we just did it 
we would just invite everybody we knew that worked in any part of the interpretive realm and somebody's house or business would be the host and everybody would bring a food dish. And at seven o'clock in the evening, we would just sit around the table and eat and everybody share what they're, they were doing. And that ended up, oh, being, okay. that ended up being a real important way of getting people to learn about training opportunities or uh, hosting opportunities or collaboration, a chance to cross-market each other, that sort of thing. It's a great idea. I recommend it. Uh, I think it's fun, especially for somebody who's in the food business in some way. <laughs> um, you can take desserts there. Uh, <laughs> the other part is just it's, it's a terrific way to get to know your colleagues, to inspire each other. But Tim, I have one question for sure. you, because I feel like uh, you've been asking all the questions. So it's my turn. And you mentioned two minutes. Did you ever go through a difficult moment in your professional career? And in, in how did you overcome it? Well, your most through, difficult moment. Yeah. I went through difficult moments time and time again. I would yeah. tell you that my professional colleagues saved my life many times. Mm. And sometimes it was getting on the phone with them and talking to them and uh, kind of getting talked off the ledge, you know. This is awful. Okay. I quit my job. I'm going to run away. Some of it was just counseling, but some of yeah. it was getting better ideas. And, yeah. and I think also sometimes it's time to change your job or change, change your approach to your job. Yeah. Because uh, it's that thing of saying uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you professional networks for me helped me land the job I wanted, helped me get better at every job than I was. I took over a nonprofit organization that was dying and they told me it was had a year of my salary. They had three months. I had to hit the ground running so hard, so fast, it was ridiculous. And I had to talk to other people that were doing it and saying, how are you doing this? How are you keeping up? So that's the reason I would encourage you to form that local professional network, even if it's a very informal thing. Uh, okay. I think they end up being vital, but you're, you're doing the right thing because you are an early adopter. You've gotten out there and bought the books and read them <laughs> and taken training at two in the morning. I admire that kind of gumption. And <laughs> thank you for being on here with me today. And it's great to see you again. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for yeah seeing you. Nice to see you as well. Well, I wish you well in the Philippines. And I hope our paths cross in person someday. Let us know if we can be of help. And uh, all best wishes with everything you're doing. I'd like to thank all of you for joining Kara and I today on Reflections on Interpretation talking story with guides and interpreters. Next week, November 24th, Friday, I will be taking a week off from doing the podcast. And from now on, my podcast will be every other Friday and not every Friday. My next guest on December 1 is Ryan Fincham, director of the Center for Protected Area Management at Colorado State University, talking story about how interpretation fits in with their work. I will teach a virtual certified interpretive guide course from December 4th to 13th via Zoom, and you can register at interpnet.com.
Thanks again to Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This time it's Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week. And if in the USA, enjoy your Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful holiday. Aloha.